All right, here we go. If you got a Bible, find Matthew chapter four. That is the first book of what we call the New Testament. It's one of the four gospels, which are historical true narratives, unpacking the life and teaching and death and resurrection of Jesus. Today is the beginning of something that's gonna be, I hope, one of the most formative, powerful things we've ever done in the history of our church. Today's the beginning of a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. This is the first recorded sermon of Jesus. This is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus and it is straight up fire. So today we're gonna be diving into this. And I found myself over the last couple of months as I've been studying and thinking and praying about this sermon series, getting really overwhelmed. Uh, I think I hit like page 1000 of reading church history and studying commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount. And I just had to push away from them because there's so many different takes on this sermon. In church history, it's been interpreted in massively, massively different ways. Like early on in the first three to 400 years of the church, the Sermon on the Mount was seen as kind of the definitive foundational document for discipleship in the church. Like they love the Sermon on the Mount. They taught the Sermon on the Mount. If you were going through catechism in the early church, you would hear a lot of the Sermon on the Mount. St. Augustine, who's one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church, he said this, the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect standard for the Christian life. A perfect standard for the Christian life. So a guide for discipleship. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Now, things have changed over time. And we also have sort of a progressive Christian take on the Sermon on the Mount that uses the Sermon on the Mount to sort of separate out the teachings of Jesus from the miracles and the crucifixion of Jesus. So the way to do the Sermon on the Mount where it's like, hey, Jesus is sort of another philosophical teacher that tries to separate these words that he taught from his life and his death and his resurrection. And the results of that can be devastating. In fact, they can be soul crushing for you if you try to follow this sermon without actually knowing Jesus in his resurrection. In other points of history, the Sermon on the Mount has just been straight up ignored or evaded by Christians. Like how do we explain away these difficult things that Jesus said? Some people have taught, in fact, that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus painting an impossible ideal. Like he's just kind of wasting everybody's time talking about stuff that can't ever be a reality in our lives. For some, the Sermon on the Mount is just law. So it's Jesus unpacking law to sort of crush us and drive us to our need for a savior. And then you got people that can uh, say dumb things in the way that only really smart people can. Like there's a way of being dumb that requires a lot of intelligence. Give you a quick example. <laughs> One guy wrote this, he said, from the standpoint, and you have to kind of read this like a scholar, from the standpoint of Paul, Luther, and Calvin, the soteriology, which just means doctrine of salvation, the soteriology of the Sermon on the Mount is irredeemably heretical. It's like, oh yeah, dude, you just called Jesus a heretic. You're dumb. You just said that Jesus disagrees with the rest of the New Testament. That's dumb. Because it's the spirit of God that inspired the whole thing that worked through human authors to give us this book to help us know who God is and what God's like. For others, for others, the Sermon on the Mount has just haunted them, right? Like 
Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. were haunted by the Sermon on the Mount in beautiful ways. The whole concept of passive resistance towards evil and being willing to bear up persecutions in the work for justice that were foundational for Gandhi's philosophy, even though he wasn't a follower of Jesus, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy, who was a follower of Jesus, they trace back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Western literary tradition, you have great writers and thinkers like Tolstoy that were just haunted by this sermon. Like Tolstoy was just wrecked by the Sermon on the Mount. And then you have people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was this amazing like pastor and theologian. He started a punk rock underground seminary in Germany when the Nazi right was in power. He was resisting the power of the Nazis. And it was the Sermon on the Mount, it was the Sermon on the Mount that actually led Dietrich Bonhoeffer to the concentration camp in which he was eventually hung by a piano wire. This is a big deal, man. This sermon is profound. It's beautiful and it's disturbing. And you're going to find that over the next 14 weeks. It's comforting and it also steals us of some of the comforts that we go to. It's profound in its complexity, but it's also in some beautiful ways, just very simple and straightforward. And I have to admit, to my shame, I've been in pastoral ministry for 20 years. And to my shame, in 20 years, I've never preached through the whole Sermon on the Mount. I've just been scared of it, if I could admit that to you. Right? The Sermon on the Mount has always kind of felt to me like just sort of above my head. And it's felt too profound for me to even touch. Like the Sermon on the Mount kind of feels like if you've ever been on the West Coast uh, during like a a storm swell where the waves are just massive, like in Northern California, where you've got these 60 foot waves that come in every few years. The Sermon on the Mount has always felt to me like trying to swim out into that. Like that's a bad idea. And yet, listen, what's happened to me over the last six months, as you guys gave me the gift of being able to go on sabbatical and study some church history and read the Sermon on the Mount more deeply, what's happened in my soul is the Sermon on the Mount has become really sweet to me. It's, it's helped me see the sweetness of Jesus in some new ways. The Sermon on the Mount has led me to a real hunger and a thirst to experience just personal renewal in my walk with Jesus. It's helped me long for our church and the broader Western church that so often just doesn't look very much like Jesus it's led me to long for the people of God to take serious the person and work of Jesus, to really follow Jesus, to know Jesus and to be formed by Jesus. So over the next 14 weeks, we're gonna walk through this whole sermon. We're gonna walk through it. We're gonna talk about it in community groups. We're gonna study it. I'm gonna plead with you guys to not be lazy in your pursuit of truth, to not just show up on Sunday morning to be spoon-fed by me and Chad and the other pastors, but I'm gonna encourage you to get into the ring and let the Sermon on the Mount throw some blows at you over the next 14 weeks to read it for yourself, to study it, to think about what Jesus is saying. And at the end of the day, as we do that, and as we talk about some ways in which the Sermon on the Mount shaped the practice of the early church, I want you to get at the very beginning today that the goal of all this is not just intellectual information that puffs, up, that puffs us up with arrogance. The goal of this whole study is to actually know Jesus 
to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to be a church that reflects Jesus more beautifully in our world. Because since the very beginning of Jesus's mission and movement, Jesus's dream for the church is that we would be a countercultural people that look like him on planet earth, that we would embody Jesus in the world. And if non-Christians wanted to see a glimpse of Jesus, they would look at the people of God and they would point to Jesus and his death and his resurrection in the way that we're formed to look like him and walk with him on planet earth. So thank you for being here. We're gonna walk through this thing for the next 14 weeks together. We're gonna today give you a little bit of background that we think is helpful, a little bit of introduction as you read this book. And what I wanna do today as we do that is I wanna talk a little bit about context. I want to talk about context. Context really matters if you're going to read any kind of literature well, and especially if you're going to read the sacred writings of scripture. Context is super important. And so what I want to do today is just talk a little bit at the beginning about the context in Jesus's day. So when Jesus walked up the mountain and he sat down and opened his mouth and taught that crowd these words from the sermon, who were the people that he was talking to? And what had shaped them and what did they believe and what were their fears and what were their longings and how did the words of Jesus deconstruct some things to reconstruct some more beautiful things in their lives? And then, listen, we believe the book of the, book of the Bible, we believe that the word of God is revelation, right? It's revelation, which means it's not just like studying history. It's not just like studying literature, although it is literature. We believe it's God speaking today. So I want to talk a little bit about our culture, our context, and the ways that we've been formed and the ways in which Jesus is going to deconstruct some of the ways we see the world in 2019 if we really sit as a students under this book. Is that okay if we do that? All right, good, because I don't have a plan B. All right, so here we go. Let's talk a little bit about context. And then I'm just gonna walk you through the first three verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And then next week, we're gonna walk through the beautiful and baffling Beatitudes. We'll do that together next week. So let's talk context. Jesus's day, there's two contexts in Judaism in the whole region that Jesus was speaking known as Judea. And among Jews that were hearing these words, there's two big cultural movements that had formed the way they saw the world, right? The first is what historians call Second Temple Judaism. Second Temple Judaism. And that just means that's the period of time between the reconstruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD, right? That's just a little bit of history. And here's what you gotta get. If you were a Jew during the time of Jesus, you were living in a time of unparalleled longing and disillusionment waiting for the kingdom of God. Because the Old Testament has all these prophecies and all these promises, and they all kind of find their climax in a promise that God made to a pagan guy that became one of his friends named Abraham and a king that did some dirt, but was still by God's grace known as a man after God's heart named David. And those two prophecies, right? One was that God was gonna take this guy named Abram he was gonna give him a new name called Abraham and God promised him that God would bring blessing to the entire world through his offspring, right? Blessing to the entire world. Like not just one people group, not just one ethnicity, but the big, crazy, giant promise that in some ways the whole Old Testament is unpacking is that God is gonna to set to right 
what we broke in our rebellion through an offspring that Abraham would have. And it would be global, it would be transcultural, it would be transethnic, it would touch all nations, tribes, and peoples. God would bring, God would bring human flourishing, beauty, and peace to people from every different background through the offspring of Abraham. Now, the second promise in the Old Testament, that's kind of the pinnacle, if the promise to Abraham is like the foundation of the Old Testament, and it really kind of is, then the pinnacle of the Old Testament is the promise made to a king named David, who was an imperfect king with an imperfect kingdom. And God told David that one day in the fullness of time, David would have an offspring. And David's son would be a better king than David, where David fell short in doing justice, his son would not. Where David's kingdom would come to an end, his son's kingdom would not. Where David's kingdom did not push back the evils of sin and injustice, the greater king, David's son, would have a kingdom that would bring shalom or peace or flourishing or wholeness to its subjects. And with that as the background, this guy named Matthew that wrote this gospel, who went from being a tax collector who was hated by fellow Jews to a disciple of Jesus and an apostle, he starts his whole gospel out with a genealogy, right? And I don't know about you guys, but if you're trying to tell a a compelling story, starting with a genealogy is not the way to go, right? If you get a chance to tell campfire stories, you don't start with, and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so for like four paragraphs, because no one's going to listen to you unless you're a Jew living in simple second temple Judaism and you had had radio silence from God for 400 years. Unless you were wondering, is God ever going to keep his promise that he's going to bless the nations through his offspring? Is God ever going to bring a king that's going to bring a kingdom that will bring freedom? Because after all, if you were a Jew in second temple Judaism, you know what king you knew? You knew Caesar. And if you were a Jew, Caesar was a really crappy king. He was a king that overtaxed you. He was a king that didn't give you justice. He was a king that could crucify you if you got out of line. And so if you were living in second temple Judaism, you had this sort of like longing mixed with kind of a bit of cynicism. Like we want the kingdom to come. We want the king to show up, but is God ever gonna keep his word? And that's the culture that Matthew's writing about when he starts his gospel off with, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Meaning he's saying, hey, you know who this Jesus is? He's the answer to all of that Old Testament longing. He's the fulfillment of all those prophecies and all those promises. Now, the second culture you gotta be aware of is that they lived in the Greco-Roman world, right? They weren't just Jews. They were Jews that had been influenced by Greek and Roman culture. Matthew, who wrote this gospel, wrote it in Greek. That's not for nothing. You need to know that. And in in the Greco-Roman world, they lived in this world that had been shaped by hundreds of years of philosophy, right? You don't have to be a philosophy student to know that. You just know that the Greek tradition was full of all these philosophers that disagreed with each other, but they were all trying to answer one big question. What does it look like to live a life of blessing 
or flourishing or happiness in the world. Now, when we use the word happiness today, we have a modern version, which kind of means pleasure, right? Happiness is pleasure. Happiness is having good circumstances in your life. The ancient version of happiness was real different. It wasn't pleasure so much as a life of meaning and depth that actually counted. And so you have these philosophers, you had Epicurean philosophers and you had Stoic philosophers. You had all of these different Greek thinkers and later Roman thinkers. And they're trying to answer the question, what does it look like to live a life that lines up with reality? What does it look like to live a beautiful life in a broken world? And so here's what happens. Jesus shows up, right? He shows up and he starts doing crazy things like touching the untouchable. He starts doing crazy things like casting demons out of oppressed people. He starts doing crazy things like interacting and mingling with a whole group of people who were considered sinners in second temple Judaism who couldn't come to the temple. They were unclean. He starts doing miracles, man. He's healing the sick. He's opening blind eyes. And Matthew chapter four tells us that it's that sort of misfit band of people that gather around Jesus, whose lives are not going well, whose lives are not beautiful in the world's standards, who have been longing for a king and longing for a kingdom, who look at all of the versions of the good life that the philosophers have talked about and their life does not feel like it has any chance of being a good life. And Jesus, in that culture, stands up to preach his sermon. Now, before we go on and read the words of his sermon, one more context that we need to think about. What's our context today? Well, that's a super hard question to answer. If you had a chance to stand up here and say, here's sort of the heartbeat of American culture in this moment, it would be really difficult to do that. It's confusing. It's polarized. It often feels like you kind of have America divided 50-50 between sort of pluralists on the left and diehard conservatives on the right. And it feels like they're just always throwing rocks at each other. And the cultural heartbeat of our day is this polarized, divided people that are just trying to make it as consumers in the world. Now, what's interesting about that is that if you did a Venn diagram, right? And you had like the far right conservatives over here and the left progressives over here, you would see them chasing the good life with really different ways and means, right? conservatives, what's the good life? Well, the good life is having free markets, right? It's unbridled capitalism. The good life is the traditions that were handed down and the institutions that were handed down. The good life is family. The good life is security. The good life is prosperity. And then if you went to the progressive, right? Like what, what's the good life? And the progressives would talk about things like the good life is deconstructing forms and institutions that have brought oppression. The good life is having a new morality where we can kind of call our own balls and strikes with things like sexuality and things like relationship. The good life and the progressive side over here is a pursuit of diversity, a pursuit of justice. And you might think, well, these two camps have nothing together, right? Like they never touch, they're polar opposites. But here's the thing that's fascinating that touches all Americans, whether you consider yourself in the center or the left or the right, in the center of that Venn diagram, 
progressives and conservatives have way more in common than what they tend to admit. And what we have in common, listen, is the very heartbeat of postmodern Western culture that has formed you and shaped what you believe and shaped what you love, even if you don't know how to name it. And that beating heartbeat is that we have bought into what some guys have called expressive individualism. Others have called it the atomization of humanity, meaning just like we're just single players in the world. And what that basically means is this, for all of us as postmoderns, the good life, the good life is pursuing freedom of self with no restrictions or limitations except the ones that I choose. The good life is freedom. The good life is that I get to be my own authority, whether I'm conservative and that's expressed in free markets or whether I'm liberal and that's expressed in new moral codes. The good life for both is this expressive individualism where we get to be sort of our own master, where we get to to declare balls and strikes in our lives. And the thing that's fascinating about it is that conservatives and liberals or progressives and the right, what they have in common is the ethos of the day that's shaping all Americans and turning us in to nothing more than consumers shaping the good life through experiences that tell us who we are. So think about it like this. Take Tinder as an example. A guy named Mark Sayers, an Australian thinker and pastor, said this recently, and it's brilliant. Tinder is the coming together of the left and the right in one app to pull apart the world. <laughs> it's digital capitalism and the progressive view of sexuality in bed together. Yes. We think, we think that everything's divided between the progressives and the conservatives. And what we fail to realize is that as Americans, the very ethos that's shaping us is this crazy idea that we get to form our own identity on our own terms, whether it's conservative or it's liberal. Freedom means at the end of the day, I'm the boss of my life. And the problem, the problem is it's just not working. Like the problem is it's just not working. We're so flipping anxious. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses. We're trying to buy the right products. We're trying to buy the right lifestyles. We're trying to buy the right vacations. We're trying to have the right experiences. We're trying to manage all of our relationships. And with us being in the center of our lives, being the ultimate authority of our lives, what we've got is the most anxious, stressed out, over-medicated group of people that have ever lived in the history of the world. And that's not just out there, that's you and that's me too. We don't, despite all of our language of freedom of self, we don't experience more freedom. We're not experiencing more joy. Our relationships aren't deeper. Our families aren't better. Our pursuit of deconstruction, whether that's deconstruction of limitations on the marketplace as a conservative, or whether that's deconstruction of traditions and old ideas of morals, like no matter how much we deconstruct, what we're not building is a better, more beautiful life. And Jesus 
And the Sermon on the Mount is going to do something beautiful. He's going to address the culture of his day that's longing for a king and cynicism and trying to figure out what the good life is through philosophy. He's going to address those longings, not by capitulating to their beliefs, but by deconstructing what's not true and showing them what is true. And in the very same way, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to make some radical authority claims about what it really looks like to live a life of beauty and flourishing that, are, that have never been more poignant than they are in our moment. So with that in mind, take your Bible, Matthew chapter five. We're just going to do the first little section together and we'll cover all the Beatitudes and salt and light next week. Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. And by the way, before we move on, if your life is really working for you, awesome. Awesome. But could you do the really brave thing of actually taking a quiet, sober assessment of the inner state of your own house and just be honest with yourself for a second? I know this is church, no place for honesty. But is it working? Because the people Jesus is talking to, they know what they've got going on is not working. And the problem that we've got in this room is that so often we think it's working because we can stay busy and entertained and fed and plugged into technology 24-7 and not ever have to step into the terrifying silence where you realize that what you have inside does not look like peace, does not feel like freedom, does not, does not lead to joy. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what happens. Verse one, seeing the crowds. And I just say, Jesus sees this crowd too. He sees you with your baggage. He sees you with your addictions. He sees you with your gods that aren't God. He sees you with your fears. He sees you with your anxieties. He sees it all. And instead of turning away, he turns towards us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed, blessed. Next week, we'll talk about the blessings he talks about. Today, I wanna talk about what Matthew is telling us here. Because Matthew is not telling us that Jesus is going up a mountain just for better acoustics right? The point is not, hey, Jesus needed to be heard. There was no loud, no loudspeaker, no amplification. So he climbs a mountain because it was just sort of the convenient thing to do. When Matthew, a Jewish man, tells us that Jesus walked up a mountain and then sat down, which is a gesture of authority, and then opened his mouth to teach, he's telling us something really big. He's telling us something really big. Let me read from a great commentary called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. Listen to these words. Throughout the ancient world and today, high places are understood as the location where gods speak and reveal. Ancient Israel is no exception and mountains played key roles in turning points in Israel's history, thereby making mountains potent theological symbols. One can think of Mount Ararat, Mount Carmel, Mount Gilead. You don't have to know all these, but they were all a big deal in the Old Testament. 
Mount Moriah, Mount Pisgah, Mount Zion, each of these and many others are rich with evocations in Israel's history. And the ultimate mountain, ex- mountain experience in the Old Testament, does anybody know what it was? Bonus rounds, anybody know? Sinai. Because the pinnacle of God's grace in the Old Testament was this. Listen, after 430 years in slavery in the lands of Egypt. Listen, don't sanitize the Bible. Read it like it's meant to be read. That's 430 years of moms not knowing if they would have enough food for their babies the next day as slaves. That's 430 years of husbands knowing that they couldn't protect their wives from the sexual assaults that were being done against them. That's 430 years of people feeling the Egyptian lash on their back after 430 years because God heard all their prayers and all their cries and counted all their tears in a moment of unbelievable rescue and grace. God raised up a guy named Moses to be a deliverer. God sent Moses and he did a rescue that involved lambs being slain and the blood of lambs being put on doorposts so that the judgment of God would pass by God's people. And God then took his people and he did this crazy thing, like this massive display of grace. He parts the Red Sea and his people walk through on dry land. And then that prophet Moses walks up a mountain called Sinai, meets with God and is given law or ordinance to help form God's people into a reflection of God's character among the pagan nations. And the problem with all that in the Old Testament is they were delivered from Egypt geographically, but Egypt was still inside of all their bellies and hearts. So while Moses is on the mountain, what's Egypt or what's Israel doing? They're having an orgy as they worship a golden calf at the bottom. What do they keep doing throughout the story? They keep saying, slavery was better, let's go back. And now in the fullness of time, this writer named Matthew is seeing Jesus answer all these prophecies and preach good news to the poor and heal the sick. He's the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. And now before Jesus says a single word, Jesus the greater Exodus, who's going to not just get people out of Egypt, but get Egypt out of people through his death and resurrection. Jesus, who's not just the giver of new covenant law, he's also the lamb that's going to be slain to empower us to keep it. Jesus, the greater and better Moses, climbs a mountain and he opens his mouth and he starts teaching what it's going to look like to be a part of this new covenant reality as God's people. This is a big deal. What happens, listen, is he starts with this word blessed, which can we admit that means literally nothing in our culture. It's like, what does that mean? You'd have to go to like Mardell to buy a poster to even see that word in our culture. Nobody says that. Nobody uses that word blessed, blessed. Even the word beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word for blessing. Like we don't know what that means. It's weird. At the most, that's something you say when someone sneezes, but Jesus is saying something really profound. That word blessed, here's what it means. It means happy, but not happy because you have all this pleasure and circumstances that are great because you can't be persecuted and be happy if happiness is circumstances. 
He says happy or, or flourishing or in alignment with reality or whole. These are all words that Jesus is pointing to when he says blessed. Here's what he's saying. As he climbs that mountain as a better Moses, as the better Passover lamb, to give a better, more complete law because he's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is saying, listen, I came, you messed up, exhausted, untouchable people, you anxious people. I came to actually bring you into a life that has meaning, that has beauty, that could be described as a life of flourishing. And that doesn't mean it's gonna be easy. See, what Jesus is doing is making a deep and drastic, he's making an extreme authority claim throughout all the gospels, but especially in this moment. He's saying, as long as you're your own authority, you're not gonna flourish. But when you come to me and submit to my authority, even though people might kill you, even though I'm gonna describe you as poor in spirit, even though people are going to say evil things about you for my namesake, you're actually under my authority. You're walking in a kingdom that's both now and not yet where you're learning what it means to be fully human because Jesus came to bring new humanity. So as we close today, here's the question. Who's your authority? Who's your authority? And don't be religious. Don't do the Christian matrix backbend where you just give a try answer. Because whatever really determines the bigger choices of your life, that's your authority. It might be fear of man. It might be an image you're trying to prop up. It might be a relationship that you've elevated above God. It might be a thousand different things, but whatever answers the question what am I to do? That's your authority. And to be a Christian, to be a Christian is not to become perfect. It's not to not blow it. It's not to cease to be frail. But to be a Christian means that the authority of your life has radically shifted in your faith and allegiance to Jesus, where he is your Lord. And his lordship might lead you to giving up things. It might lead you to suffering. It might lead you to persecution. It might lead you to saying no to things that you would like to say yes to. But when Jesus is your ultimate authority, what you're going to experience in the midst of all kinds of challenges is a life of flourishing because he is good. The only way the only way we could trust Jesus is if he didn't just climb the mountain to preach this sermon, but if he also climbed the second mountain, Golgotha, to die for us. Because all other kings, even the best kings, use and gobble up their subjects. And don't do the weird American thing. We don't have a king. We all have authority structures in our lives and most of us, our authority structure is just us. Whatever your real authority is, is your king. And the problem is there's only ever been one king 
that instead of gobbling up his people, got gobbled up for them, and that's Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about showing us what it looks like to follow the beauty and authority of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, to be formed to look more like him in the world.